Number one, you need to see what you're interested in. And two, you just have to step out and put yourself in the middle of it. Otherwise, nobody is going to come and get you. Just remember yeah. that. Nobody's going to knock on the door and say, would you like to do this? You have to put yourself out there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Dr. Katherine Everett. Dr. Everett is a graduate of Duke University, the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, where she completed her residency and fellowship in pediatric radiology, and she received her MBA from the Yale School of Management. She is a managing partner of Coastal Radiology in New Bern, North Carolina, where she served as practice president and chief of staff of Carolina East Radiology Medical Center. Coastal Radiology is now part of Radiology Partners, and Catherine serves as the associate chief medical officer of practice analytics. Dr. Everett is also a member of the Board of Chancellors of the American College of Radiology and is current treasurer of the American Association of Women in Radiology. Dr. Everett, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today, and thank you so much for your time. You've had a very interesting career and a very unique career as both a leader in radiology as well as someone working in a rural community, and so I'm really excited to get into those topics with you today. But first, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up, and, and how did you find your way into radiology? I actually grew up on a tobacco farm in eastern North Carolina. I was driving a tractor by the time I was eight years old. We had mules. I worked in tobacco and, you know, told my daddy if I ever got off of that place, I was never touching dirt again. But <laughs> I sound like, you know, country kick, and I guess I am. But my parents were both very educated, as were my entire family. I have an uncle that's a radiologist, an uncle that's an ophthalmologist, engineer, teachers. My dad, he went to NC State and graduated. My mother has an advanced degree. So despite the fact I grew up on dirt, I still had educated parents and they expected me to do well. So that's my background. Obviously, my radiology uncle had some influence on me. I knew about radiology. Most people didn't. It was such a small yeah. specialty when I went to medical school. And then I spent some time with him and his practice and really liked what he did. So I almost knew when I started medical school that I wanted to be a radiologist. We'll get into radiology in a second, but what follow-up question. What is the tobacco farm now? My brothers and I actually still own the farm it's rented out and there is still tobacco grown in Eastern North Carolina. It's mainly large farmers who rent multiple farms. We also have cotton. Lavender is being grown in Eastern North oh, Carolina wow. now. And Beautiful. hemp. Cotton and peanuts are probably the best two crops right now as far as quality. And the peanuts that you eat out of cans yeah. tend to come from North Carolina. They, we grow the nicest peanuts. The ones in Georgia <laughs> are used for like peanut oil and things like, and, you know, things that are too good uh, to commercial. go into the peanut butter and the snacks. Yeah. These yeah. are the organic whole peanuts. Very cool. So, and then set the stage for us. So when, when your uncle was practicing radiology, what was the field like? He spent the day reading x-rays on a, you know, a view box. And then he did fluoro talked to patients a lot. He actually had a radiology helper 
which was someone who threw the films up for him and took them down and put them back in the jackets for him so he could just keep dictating and obviously dictated with a tape and took the tape out and transcribed whatever he said what was Um, the turnaround time do you think back then oh turnaround time even when i started for the first five or six years was two to three days but it it was faster than i was expecting well it didn't really matter because we almost all the cases we did the referring physicians came by the radiology department first thing in the morning around it they looked at their Mm. films talked about the cases, asked us, you know, we, we knew a lot more about the patients then because we had direct communication with the people taking care of. So tell us a little bit about the early days of your radiology practice, kind of what led to you then over time, you end up, you know, running the group. Well, when I finished fellowship for the current group of young people, this is going to sound absurd. I knew I wanted to practice where there was a river that I could water ski. That was my number one. one I don't, okay. Can I tell you that's not ridiculous at all? Long time listeners to this podcast know that I live in Utah for exactly one reason, which is my wife needed to do a fellowship and I asked if she could do it somewhere where you could ski. Now, now this was skiing on mountains as opposed to skiing on rivers, which is maybe a little more common, but I I can relate to you a (laughs) hundred percent. So anyway, I looked around. I did back when I was a resident, we could actually cover radiology practices weekends, moonlighting. Mm. So I actually worked in several places just to see what I did like. And one of the places was New Bern. New Bern is great because it has two rivers. It has a nice water ski river and then it has a big sailing river. So the Noose River goes into the Pamlico Sound and it's only 40 (laughs) miles from the coast. So it's perfect for me. Incredible. Do you do both then? Water um, ski and sail? I, d- I do not sail. My, one of my kids sails some, and my brother was an outstanding sailor. He actually was in the Olympic trials. So, oh, wow. Yeah. But anyway, I water ski to this day. I don't water ski as well as I used to, but I can still do it. That's so cool. Okay, so you found the perfect location for practice. Mm-hmm. And then what? What was it like when you joined the group? So, I mean, I actually, I did, I had an opportunity basically at only two places. One was one of the places I worked the weekends the most, um, and that was too remote for me. And the other was New Bern. And the reason that I got a job offer here is because one of the people practicing here was, had been a resident ahead of me. So he knew me. And there were a lot of preconceived ideas about women back then when I came out of medical school and, and residency, and there were very few women radiologists in private practice. It, it just sort of an unknown. So Larry Adams hired me and he asked me within the first week, he said, okay, do you just want to work here or do you want to be like a real owner of the group? Hmm. And, you know, we didn't think about those kind of things in residency and I said you know I think I want to be a real owner he said good go to the bank I want you to go get a loan for the practice so that was he just kind of threw me into it and Mm -hmm. I think 10 years later he wished he never opened that can of worms but boy what an education it was unleashed something in you it was um (laughs) yeah and I found I like to be in the room where things are decided I wanted to be a part of that and not just be told that so Um, what were some of the Decisions being made in that time. Well, growth, you know, expansion, new modalities. New modalities. This is also something very foreign to the way things are now. But when I first came to Newburn, 
physicians could actually rent space in the hospital for specific modalities or, or specific things they wanted to have. Like the surgeons could rent space and put a vascular lab in or do, and the like older a, radiologists. Like a shopping mall. Yeah. The older radiologists in my group had the first CAT scanner in North Carolina. We had a CAT scanner in Newburn before they did it at UNC. Wow. And that's the reason because he rented the space and bought the CAT scanner. <laughs> Anyway, so obviously, you know, those kind of businesses, do we want to open an office that uh, competes with the hospital? That was a serious thing to think about. And it still is. I mean, it's obviously a problem for groups now. Just keeping up with the books, making sure that in the old days, you just took your radiology requisitions over to the office and then they bill for you. And that was it. Yeah. What was billing like? Who was paying for everything? Well, we had insurance companies and Medicare, but it was just paper. You took all the little receipts over and it was... Obviously, the volume was way less than now, and it took you longer to do the work per case because you had to do all the physical work of putting up the cases. And But, you know, we had business meetings to make sure that what was being billed was being paid and being paid correctly. And remember, this is like really pre-computer. Some, but not much, you know? Yeah. Incredible. And so then eventually... The practice grows quite a bit, and you go on to lead it and, and run the practice Tell us a little bit about what the practice is today. Well, first of all, we added a couple more hospitals and, and that kind of thing. So we obviously got larger. And in the years where recruiting was good, we were good. And when years where radiologists were tight, like now, it's hard to recruit for a small practice. Even a great place like Newburn, in my opinion, it's hard to get people to even come and look. So we grew and did okay. And actually, our practice was a big practice, but with not enough people because we had three major hospitals with EDs that were very busy, but we Mm -hmm. didn't have the outpatient, the equivalent outpatient. We have a lot of military in the area and the biggest Marine station, I think in the world, which is Lejeune had its own hospital. So all the dependents and Marines went there during the day, but they didn't run an ED. So all of that whole, we got those, evenings and weekends. And the same thing with Cherry Point Marine Air Station. So we had a, our practice was really skewed into after hours and ED work. And we struggled to cover without having a night service because we, you know, we didn't want to put our IR people and my MSK or breast people on at night, but that's who we had. You know, we didn't mm-hmm. have enough people to have full-time night coverage. We were had pressure somewhat by groups north and south of us that were a lot bigger and could do that. So you didn't ask me the question yet, but that was a lot of the consideration that led us to join an RP. We really looked hard for over two years. We looked, tried to see if we could join like the Charlotte group or the Greensboro group or Mm -hmm. the group north of us, which is in Greenville, but it was just too expensive. Charlotte's now part of RP as well. Is that right? Uh, Charlotte has its, uh, it's a different. um, Maybe one of the other big. I can't remember what it is. United. I can't remember. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. It's now. a different mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, so, we looked at a lot of practices to join, but it was too expensive. We'd already bought, everybody had already bought into our practice and we didn't want to buy into another practice. So we ended up going right. with our pig. So what were some of the other things that were challenging in sort of that time? One of the things we talked about was the technology and different digital transformations that were going on in PACs and workflow. Right. When did those types of things start to 
because you must have done a lot of that in-house for a while. Did that get overly burdensome as well? Or were you able to kind of maintain? Again, it, it was beginning to get overburdensome even before we got into packs because we had to cover three hospitals on the weekends and we didn't we just didn't have enough people. We were working oh, every hospital other... had a different system. We, yeah, well, we had together. to actually physically go to those hospitals because we didn't have. Yeah. And then once uh, we got yeah. packs, we had to figure out a way to cover so that one person can read from all three places. Well, that's expensive for a small group. And it got more and more expensive. The IT and particularly providing the redundancy we needed to make sure it was always working. We were paying more in our just phone line and IT expenses than it was a full partner salary. It was just ridiculous what we were paying. And we just had to do something different. You don't want to have three people out of, I don't remember, maybe we had eight, three people out of eight on call and working. It's not on call, it's working. But you got to have some redundancy or you can't count on one person being able to do it because of technical problems or whatever. You touched on some of these already in terms of the hospital coverage and sort of the challenge building up an outpatient business. But what are some of the other things that make a rural practice setting unique? What makes it different? What's different about the patient population? What's different about the study volumes that you see? What's different about how you got to staff it? First of all, I think you have to accept that rural populations are in general poorer than Mm -hmm. cities or suburbs. They just are. Even today, most people who live in rural areas don't like to go to big towns and big cities. Things like parking garages are challenging. I mean, when I went to um, business school at Yale, I was just amazed that you had to pay for parking. I never paid for parking in my life except <laughs> when I went to the airport, you know? So it's it's those kind of things that people don't think about. Big, big hospitals where you've got to figure out what floor you're on, go up the elevator, escalator, follow the signs. You might have to walk a quarter mile. Our patients just, that's foreign to them, scary to them. And usually two people have to get off work, the patient and somebody to go with them to make sure they all go in the right place. So it's an economic challenge. So whatever we can offer, we should, I think. Yeah. It has to be economically viable. I understand that. But there are a lot of things we can do locally that we don't have to send patients, you know, 100 miles to get a thoracentesis three times a week. Yeah. So one of the things we had talked about when we first met was... You know, this really baffled me, but you know how you, you might not have a, a radiologist on staff every day at the hospital who can do procedures. And right. so one of the ways that you are working with the hospital is to say, okay, well, we can do procedures one day a week and we'll have enough volume there. So the example you just gave, they don't have to, you know, Taylor, my wife works at the University of Utah and it's a huge bed for people from Iowa and Wyoming and Montana who can't get specialty care. But it's so much more important for them on their daily care, their regular monthly care to be able to do that locally or they won't get it done. And so talk a little bit about that because I understand too, today's radiologists, they don't do a lot of those procedures and training today. And so sometimes you got a little bit of a gap mismatch too in terms of their skills. Tell me a little bit about that. This is interesting because maybe four, three or four years ago, the ACR and the SIR, which is Society of Interventional Radiology, through some kind of sitting around chatting at the big ACR meeting, started thinking about looking at how our services 
could be performed in rural areas. By IR services here, I'm talking about basic IR services. Thoras, paras, LPs, breast biopsies under ultrasound, things that a general radiologist in the past learned, but since some of the board things have been changed, requirements have been changed, a lot of radiologists don't get much experience in procedures anymore during training. So we formed a task force, or SR formed a task force, and I happened to be able to co-chair it with Laura Fendice, who is SIR. And it was really, I think the results were shocking to some people, not to us. This is a our task force, which is a group of not only our people, but also diagnostic radiologists who function in small practices. We had a survey amongst residents that were fourth year in fellowship and we had a list of procedures that we felt like all radiology residents, when they finish the program, should feel comfortable with. And we gave that same list of procedures through the ACR and their, um, I don't know, survey wing. I forgot what the real name for that is. But anyway, to fourth year residents and fellows, and it was our top five, the residents and fellows, 80% felt not comfortable doing. So it's obvious that the training and what's out there job-wise, aren't matching really well. If you look at the ACR website and you look at what people are looking for, there are a thousand job offers on there. Why do you think that but, is? Is it because, and just brainstorming, is it because of the DRIR specialization path now? So if you say, hey, I'm not IR, but then when you do your IR rotations, they just, you know, don't mm -hmm. want anything to do with you? There are several reasons. That's one. Another mm -hmm. is that a lot of, we call them MPRPs, non-physician radiology providers, or in other words, mm. nurse practitioners and RAs, a lot of them are doing the, quote, light RR now in, mm -hmm. in big teaching programs, so the residents don't get as much opportunity to do it. Another is the way the board was restructured, where the fourth year went to many fellowships, and then mm -hmm. the fifth, you know, then you went on to your big fellowships, so you really didn't get a lot of general training. So I think all of that together has caused the problem, but it's been recognized by both the ABR and the program directors and yeah. they're working on it now. Yeah. We need to keep an eye on this space. I know the paper came out around 18 months ago. And so I think it has stirred up people to move in this mm -hmm. area and your leadership here has been really important. Um, and certainly anything our company can do to help too, if mm. there's training, you know, that we can supplement. It's funny. We talk a lot about this. So our whole thing is simulation training, but it's all in the packs. We haven't quite figured out what's the right way to do IR simulations. Uh, you, right. know, you could certainly do the didactic lectures and look at the correlating, you know, x-ray or CT images, whatever it might be, the guided imaging part, but you know, right. nothing replaces getting the reps, right? And so the programs need to carve out space for them. And, you know, probably the ACGME needs to do their part as well to mandate that they see enough or, you know, do enough of these procedures because they mandate everything else that you have to do. Right. In, in and, and another place we're looking actually is that private practice groups. It, are there ways that oh, that's um, interesting. residents and fellows can actually do, you know, like a month or some time frame with a private practice yeah. group and do some procedures? So really interesting. That's a great yeah. idea. Um, uh, Mark and, Austin, and it kind of comes back to 
the comment that you made at the beginning of the podcast where you'd had some private practice experiences, you know, 80% of people are going to go into private practice. So you'd be able to like get to meet some private practices to rotate through them and kind of mm-hmm. see and learn, you know, where would I like to work as I enter the workforce? So there could be some other benefits of that as well. Right. So tell us a little bit more about what life has been like since you sold to RP. You became the Associate Chief Medical Officer of Practice Analytics. I think that might be because you said you were, quote, good at numbers, maybe being too humble there. You've got your MBA as well. You have extensive experience in running a practice. What have you been getting involved in at RP? What has it been like building out there? Well, you know, joining RP was a challenge. RP was growing tremendously and acquiring practices and a lot of that we were one of the earlier practices end of 2016 so getting to the standard platforms and all of that has been a work in progress but it's getting there i mean i think we will ultimately be better off as far as the practice analytics you have to know what you're doing in order to know how to plan for what you should be doing. You've got to know what kind of reds you need, when you need them, be able to offer. We are so short-staffed. Everybody is right now, too few radiologists. You've got to offer flexibility. And the only way you can figure out how to do that is to figure out what studies can be read whenever and what studies you know need to be read now. Obviously, the economics has to work. You can't pay people more than you bring in. You can't run a deficit practice. So there are all sorts of things that you have to monitor in a practice to operate efficiently, but also with quality. You can do both if you have the right metrics. So I'm here at the AUR conference recording this podcast, and we had a roundtable discussion yesterday on workforce challenges recruiting, staffing, compensation, a lot of discussion around, you know, this is all academic settings, but, you know, academic settings are facing the same exact pressures, only they have fewer levers in some ways because they can't just pay people more for every RVU. And so are they doing RVU-based scheduling or are they doing shift-based scheduling? Uh When you have a rural hospital to staff, you have, you know, additional complexities where you got to staff the hospital, but that's probably not a full workload. So then are they pulling cases in from... RP's teleradiology list? And then are there areas where maybe you're not subspecialized that you can then send out to RP to provide really high quality care? So I imagine there's so many different dynamics at play just to staff a few rural hospitals. Um, Sure. One good example of that is we currently don't have a neuroradiologist in our group. So most of us can read basic neuro, but when a complicated case comes along, we tag it and it gets sent to Greensboro. They have a full staff of neuroradiologists 24-7, so they pick up the cases for us if we have something we can't tackle. So that's been a huge help for us because we want to do a good job, and we do for the average things, but something really weird. Again, pediatric radiology. I'm a pediatric radiologist, haven't seen a kid in years. We just don't have a pediatric (laughs) practice. So those, you know, any complex pediatric case or syndrome or something, we send those out. Yeah. So what, you know, when you're looking at the numbers, you you mentioned you spend a lot of time looking at the numbers kind of naturally gravitating towards that. This is an oddball question, but like, what are you looking at? What, you know, is it, all right, I sit down with my cup of coffee in the morning and I pull up my reports that have been emailed. Are there dashboards? What are the kind of key heartbeat things that you're looking at? Do you have a, a weekly meeting where you sit with the staff and, and look at different things? So 
most of the metrics are actually handled by the practice director, depending on how involved the practice president is, the practice president may or may not look at stuff daily. I look at certain reports. We have a dashboard and we have multiple reports in there. We know volume, we know RVUs, we know time-based work units, we know what we call the supply and demand, which is where the cases are, what time the cases are coming in and how many radiologists we have working at that time, all those kind of things. We also know if you're working this shift, you should expect the average person can do 40 RVUs or this one, the average person can do 60 RVUs because they're different. There's no fluoro here or you're remote or whatever. So we can really tailor what workforce we need with who's available and what people want to do. It offers a lot of flexibility to be able to do that. Again, awesome. at RP, it's, it's, a, it's a dashboard. There's a whole department of practice analytics and you know they're coders and they write programs and stuff comes out. <laughs> Incredible. Does your team also work on measuring quality? Yeah, RP has quality metrics. They call them BPRs. So yes, and we're measured on those and the radiologists get individual reports once a month. We also, of course, do MIPS macro because we have to. Everybody has to if you want to survive these days. Locally, we do a lot of our quality work through our, our practice uses 100% templated reports. We agreed. Oh, wow. we, we did this in 2012. Um, Early. We agreed. Yeah. yeah, I can tell you that story if you want to in a little bit. But anyway, we agreed that we would write the library and then we would yeah. use them. So if there's a specific thing we think we're not reporting that we should, one of the first we did, and this was we did for the ABR as part of the quality requirement, is you know nobody was reporting coronary artery calcifications. So mm-hmm. we just put in all the chest CT reports, coronary artery calcifications, and then you would say none, moderate, or marked, or not applicable if they had, you know, bypass surgery. So we went from probably less than 2% of chest CTs having some statement about coronary artery calcification to 100% because you couldn't oh. sign off the report until you did. So everybody got used to looking at it. It's one of those things that if you don't have it, you know, if you don't, remind people enough and it gets to be a habit, they're not going to do it. And so we've picked several things like that. Then there, you know, obviously there are recommendations that are standardized now, and we make sure that those are standardized in our reports. Really interesting. Sounds like you were early adopters of VR and templates. I'm curious, as you think about where you were as early adopters there, do you see yourselves becoming early adopters of AI? No. And not not because, no, I I need to tell you how we got to be the early adopters of templates. Then you'll see my answer, why I said that. So again, we were dealing with three hospitals and we knew that voice recognition was coming. And the last thing we wanted was to have three different systems, none of which we had any choice in. Mm. So... We proactively, I actually wrote my thesis on this in business school. We proactively did a business plan where we would buy a voice recognition system of our choice. And then we went to the hospital and said, we'll replace your transcriptions and we'll do Hmm. it for 50% less than what you're paying right now. This is back when that was important and they all did it. So that's a really interesting story, but you don't think that that same thing's at play here where you're going to have different AI systems adopted. And if you don't kind of mm-hmm. get your arms around it, you're going to be sort of on the receiving end of, of it. I absolutely do. 
think that it's gonna I, i'm gonna but it's gonna for us it's gonna have to come through rp it's yeah, so not it's just a bigger bigger system than, it's a you know, bigger yeah it's not the local getting practice. together saying yeah. hey here's how we want to do this now it's right you know, three thousand and, and and had we been separate and i mean had we been on our own i think we definitely would have done so, something already we'd be looking hard because we did we really worked hard on the previous and we're still doing it the hospital's we gave ourselves six months to get rid of transcriptions. We had, you know, we were paying backup transcriptions. Yeah. Nobody was using any transcription after about three weeks. Oh, we literally incredible. went cold turkey. And well, obviously nobody's going back now, but we had one site that we couldn't do it and nobody wanted to read for that site. So it was interesting. I would love to, if I were a lot younger, I'd be a lot more pushed to do something with AI that plus yeah. the fact that we're with RP and it's kind of RP's thing to do it now. Our structure is not that we would be able to pay for that as our group. Sure. It's just not structured that way. So fun fact about you is that you and your daughter graduated from Yale on the same day, she from her undergrad and you from the school of management. What inspired you uh, to pursue the MBA? I knew I wanted to do that when I have five children. And so when I went into practice, I spent the next 20 years basically practicing radiology and raising my children. But I always knew I wanted to do something else. So when Charlotte, my youngest, started at Yale, I started looking. And Yale had a program that was a not a healthcare MBA. It was a regular MBA, but the people accepted in the program were health, in the healthcare industry. Okay. And what really uh, intrigued me was, is that the co-director was a radiologist who also, oh. Howie Foreman, <laughs> he held positions in both departments, the School of Management and the School of Medicine. So I had other ulterior motives. My daughter was a field hockey player, and this would give me a chance to go up every I could watch her play on Sunday if I were in school on Saturday so but I interviewed and you know got accepted and went it was great I loved it it was a great yeah. two years incredible so. you are just so cool <laughs> I'm like floored right now raising five kids water skiing building a practice selling a practice getting your MBA all of it you know you just you've had a very full and interesting career and you know, a lot of our listeners are young radiologists, or maybe they're more mid-career, early career practicing radiologists looking to take the next step. And, you know, A, it's just helpful to hear your story. It's very inspirational. But B, you know, any any advice that you have? I think it's a tough time right now for radiologists. All they hear about is burnout. All they hear about is AI. And it can, right. you know, reimbursements going down. It can kind of be a drag. And partly just want to lift people up. You know, what advice do you have? I do believe that we have a lot more work pressure on us now than I did. The pure volume with the shorter radiologists, everybody is working at full capacity at all times. There are very few things that people do job-wise that that's the case, where you close a case, open a case, and then you keep thinking, I think it's harder. But what I would say is if you do want to be something, there's nothing wrong with practicing radiology as a job. And then having other interests that are equally fulfilling, everybody is not going to be interested in the business of radiology or the economics of radiology or the national program. And that's fine. Everybody's not alike. But if you are interested in any of those things, you have to speak up. You have to volunteer. 
you have to say, you know, if you're interested in the finances of the practice, you have to say, I'd like to go to the business meeting. You have to do some homework. You can't just show up. You have to know something about what a profit and loss statement is if you're going to go and sit down with a finance person. You got to be able to do that kind of thing. That doesn't mean you have to go to business school. There's, you know, finance for dummies. I have that in my library. But number one, you need to see what you're interested in. And two, you just have to step out and put yourself in the middle of it. Otherwise, nobody is going to come and get you. Just remember that. Nobody's going to knock on the door and say, would you like to do this? You have to put yourself out there. Yeah. Well, great advice. And Dr. Everett, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure and I really appreciate it. Well, it's kind of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.